everyone. Hope you're doing well. This is episode three of Performance Talks. As always, my name is Steve Nightingale. I'm here with my co-host Simon Taylor. We've got a great episode coming up for you today with Ishan Rawley Singh. He is the strength and conditioning coach at the Chinese national rowing team. And we had a really interesting conversation about how he works and then some of the issues around working all around the world as Ishan has done. So we start off by talking about internships and how they shaped his early career. And then we go on to talk about Ishan's recent publication uh, about his work in Canoe and how his multidisciplinary approach to building a framework is instrumental in his programming. We then move forward into talking about how you can avoid complacency if you've been with the same team for quite a while or been with the same sport. And then what differences and similarities he's seen between working with team athletes and individual athletes. He's got a great background of working in team sports like football and then with individual sports like kayaking, canoeing and rowing. We go on to talk about how he drives competition in his training sessions and then we finish off with some great content around his experience of working and coaching all over the world and then some fun parts around the perks of traveling when you're with a team. Hope you really enjoy the episode guys. Let's get into episode three. Uh, thanks for having me on guys um my journey in sports started uh playing uh playing football so that was my own um experience um playing football um always wanted to be a professional footballer and as we all know how hard it is i was never quite good enough uh to make it in the uk so when i was 18 got the opportunity to play for a professional team in India. Uh, there was a fantastic experience, did that for two years, and then eventually decided to come back to the UK uh, to pursue a sports science degree, um, and did that at Brunel University in London. And then after that, went straight on to do a master's in strength and conditioning at Edinburgh University. Um, and it's during this time, pretty much from the first year of my undergrad, that I developed an interest uh, for physical training. So I started off working initially as a personal trainer at the local fitness first, um, and then started to get some experience working with athletes, um, spent some time in India working at a tennis academy, uh, went over to the States, worked at two different division one American football programs, um, and then uh, in and around my masters worked with, uh, two professional rugby teams uh, and then professional football um, in England and Scotland. Uh, ultimately, uh, got my uh, first full-time role as a strength and conditioning coach at Blackburn Rovers Academy, uh, where I spent three years. And that was a great experience working with younger athletes uh, from nine all the way up to 18 and getting a real understanding of pediatric SNC and sports science. Um, from there, I was keen to uh, get some experience um, in other sports and broaden my skill set. So an opportunity came up at the Scottish Institute of Sport, where I, was, where I worked as a senior strength and conditioning coach, leading the triathlon and canoeing programs. And uh, that was a great experience to uh, work with older athletes competing at senior level, as well as work with um, a broad multidisciplinary team. Um, um, so I spent three years there, and then that led to my current role with the Chinese Link Olympic Committee, where I've, and I've been here for about a year and a half, uh, working with the national rowing team. 
Nice. That's a pretty broad mix of experience you've got. Um, are there any of those roles that you'd like to sort of highlight a little bit more? Or um, in particular, do you have any mentors that you really feel um, added a lot to you as a coach, particularly in your younger days? Um, yeah, that's that's an interesting question. I, I've been quite fortunate to have um, some really experienced practitioners uh, around me uh, in my different roles. So at the Scottish Institute of Sport, we had uh, quite a broad multidisciplinary team from physiologists, physiotherapists, um, other S&C coaches. So um, there are a number of things um, I learned uh, from from these different disciplines. Um, and then I've had I've been fortunate to have some really good line managers who've um, supported me through my career and even till this day. I've, some of them I, I've been in touch with and they're people I um, lean to for uh, advice from career advice to seeking critical feedback on different pieces of work. Um, and then I've reached out to a number of practitioners externally from work um, across my career uh, who've been uh, kind enough to give me some of their time. So it would be unfair to just name a couple of people because there have been a lot of people I've been fortunate um to have got support from and that's really allowed me to develop over the years yeah nice i think we're putting you a little bit on the spot there so not really too fair of us um i wanted to actually just to uh, jump in with a question i know you've done a lot of internships and you've spent a lot of time doing voluntary work and um you obviously have said then you've done your msc i'm kind of maybe breaching a, a breaching a controversial topic a little bit but I was just wondering from your opinion from uh, the work you've done from your study from your internship what have you found the most um, beneficial in terms of your development as a coach yeah that's that's been a hot topic over the last couple of years within sport and it's an interesting one um, personally I think uh, university uh, education so whether a degree or a master's or potentially even a PhD are fantastic. They give you some really good skills in terms of um, uh, research, which I think is important, uh, as well as a good founding in uh, physiology, biomechanics, uh, anatomy, etc. Uh, but ultimately, the, uh, I think the critical skills, both technical and non-technical, are those that are developed in the workplace. So um, I think personally, it's a perfectly acceptable to do some voluntary work because um, ultimately we have to start somewhere and we're not going to get paid until we have uh, some amount of experience behind us. Now, we can fit in part-time work whilst we're studying um, in and around some paid work. So there are ways to actually get that experience and, and that can be at a, a variety of levels. Um, I, I've, I've done a combination of uh, voluntary work and then some of my internships uh, were paid. Um, so uh, there, I think there are ways to kind of get the experience required to get your foot in, in the door. Now, they do require sacrifices and sure, there's a lot we can do um, to, to make the, the industry a lot better and have better career paths for people coming in, uh, similar to other professions. Um, but I think it boils down to being uh, being smart about how you spend, um, where, where you devote your attention and um, how you actually go about getting your foot in into the door in terms of getting that first job, which is 
sometimes a hard bit. Um, making connections uh, is really important. Um, I think doing your research uh, in terms of the things one needs to do to develop oneself to get that first role is key. And uh, the question is, can universities play a role there? Yes, potentially. Um, at least from my experience, uh, on the first year of my master's, our program leader was pretty honest with us, uh, painted a very clear picture of what things could be like when we finished um, and said, if anyone feels this is not for them, then, um, you know, they, they could get a full refund, you know, should they choose not to continue the course. And I think that was quite good. Um, everyone obviously carried on and most people have moved on to uh, be in some fairly good roles. So I think uh, it is a challenging uh, field to break into, but it's, it's certainly a doable one if, if we do the right things early on. Yeah, I think that's um, this is a really interesting topic in our field right now. And I think you make a couple of good points there. Um, it's quite interesting, though, for myself. Obviously, I, I kind of did a slightly different route to you guys instead of doing my master's straight after um, doing my undergrad, I actually went out into work and got my experience and I only did my master's, uh, completed it beginning of last year, um, which actually I felt served me really well because I used the master's to kind of update my knowledge and skill set. There's obviously a lot of things that have changed in the last 15 years since I graduated so for me that it was really valuable to be able to go out get that kind of experience um like you said ishan there's a load of ways you can do it um for me there was a mix of working with gem pop um i actually got i remember being turned down for an internship once with a, a pro rugby club and it actually turned out to be the best thing that could have happened because if i'd have taken that internship i would have been working full time and not getting paid for it and instead I got a part-time position with a tennis academy that allowed me to actually learn and develop I was it was a paid position so I was earning as I went and the rest of my experience came from you know some gem pop clients and some other um, individual athletes and and teams um, so I think there's a variety of ways that we can kind of get that experience but I think it's really interesting what you said about the universities maybe needing to um, fill that gap a little bit better. I know the where I'm at now at Fortius, we actually have a pretty good program with some of the local universities and we take in students for placements. Uh, not Obviously, not everyone is lucky enough to get those opportunities while they're at university, but I definitely think that's probably where uh, the universities need to go in terms of filling that skills gap. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, I had a great experience on my MSc um, but very much I learned a lot more of my, my softer skills when I finished. It's funny, the reason I kind of bring the question up just yesterday, um, somebody had sent me a, a link and there's a job uh, for a strength and conditioning coach at the England Ice Hockey Association, which is the role I used to have. And somebody had sent me the link and said, oh, you know, they're offering this position again. It's voluntary again. You know, they're not going to get anyone to do the role. And I kind of felt like I had to speak out because I did that role for four years and it was all voluntary. And if I didn't do that, which didn't realistically take so much of my time, uh, but if I didn't do that, I wouldn't be where I am today. So, you know, I fully understand, you know, that everybody wants to make money, but, um, you know, 
for nearly everybody that you speak to, someone's done volunteer work. And it's not just a case of ticking a box. It's actually you learn so much in that first placement that I think it's worthwhile. Um, nice little discussion there. Let's actually, we kind of segue away from uh, from where we're going to start with. But I wanted to talk, first of all, uh, Ishan, you just recently published, uh, let me get this right, developing a, st- a strength and conditioning technical framework, an example from Canoe Slalom National Performance Program uh, in Strength and Conditioning Journal. Um, can you just kind of briefly summarize the approach that you take when you're designing a framework? Um, sure, Steve. So for me, a, f- a framework um, has been a really important um, process in terms of actually leading a strength and conditioning program. It's provided me with uh, clarity of the outcomes I'm working towards and then allowed strategic alignment to the overall sport program. So a starting point has always been to do a thorough needs analysis and that's included um, looking at the kinematic, the kinetic and the energy system demands of sport, as well as um, a review of the key injuries within the sports. Um, and, and the key here has always been to actually work um, with the multidisciplinary team, because I found these are people who have uh, deep skill sets in different areas, and one can really tap into these skill sets to actually then strengthen the strength and conditioning program and then further one's understanding of certain areas. So for example, the physiotherapist for me has always played a key role um, in terms of understanding uh, key injuries within the sport, risk factors, etc. And then working together, devise potential injury reduction strategies for these areas. Um, and then that sort of allows one to uh, form objectives uh, for the strength and conditioning program. Um, uh, and then within the framework, there were key elements, basically, that sort of, uh, and it was interaction of these elements that allowed attainment of these objectives. So an, an example was, um, of an ob- objective was to develop uh, or contribute towards maximizing power output for the duration of race. Um, and one of the elements that supported this was force generation. And that was then taken a step further to devise tangible training strategies and broken down into an outcome. Uh, which was maximal force expression of the shoulder extensors, um, the adaptations needed to attain that from a neurological and structural point of view, and then ultimately the training application. So guiding us down the load that we need for an adaptive response. Uh, and then finally, the sort of exercise would be appropriate for the athlete in front of us. Um, and then topping that off with a testing marker. Um, I really like the fact that you include right from the get-go the the rest of the team i think it's really important that whenever we're working on something like this particularly if it's a new sport and we're trying to build our own understanding of it that actually you consult with the technical coaches and the uh, physios and all the other practitioners on the team some of which may have been in in that sport longer than you or may have been with that particular team for longer than you and have some really useful information um what's your normal kind of approach when you're trying to discuss say you're new to the sport, you want to discuss this with the head coach, how do you normally go about bringing up that conversation and and expressing that perhaps you don't know so much about the sport? Um, 
This is something I've actually learned the hard way. Um, when I first started out, I would always start by telling people what I thought, and this is what the strength and conditioning program should look like for the sport. And as you can probably imagine, um, that didn't uh, that that may not have gone down well at all. Um, but with experience, I've learned that particularly going to new sport, always ask the question first. So. I found it a lot more effective in terms of not only building buy-in, but also actually getting an understanding of the sport you're working with is to start with asking the sport uh, how they feel the S&C program can actually contribute and how they feel that it can support what they're trying to do. Because um, ultimately, it needs to fit into the overall sport framework. So to give you a bit of an example, if we're trying to develop a maximal force expression in the gym, what that's going to give you is adaptations uh, that are structural. Now, in order to get transfer, the coach needs to be working on something that's addressing global coordination. So what I mean by that is uh, magnitude, rate, timing, and type of muscle contraction. So f f in canoe slalom, um, going back to the example uh, I highlighted previously around force generation, that that's well and good, but ultimately... Uh, the athletes need to have a component in the training program where that, that, that's being addressed. So for, uh, that might be uh, flat water sprints or speed work or power output work on the ergometer, but there needs to be something that's going to bridge that gap and allow maximum transfer into the sport. Yeah, do you know, it's really interesting. I, I read the article the other day and you talk so much in there about how you work with the with the coaching staff and and the reason i think it's interesting we had stephen breisner on in a different episode and i love kind of getting into the nuts and bolts with coaches about their their kind of needs analysis and their programming because everyone seems to do it in a different way and and in that discussion we kind of focused quite heavily on published literature and going back into, you know, he, he's working in speed skating right now. I work in hockey and there's so much published literature that you can refer to. What I thought was super interesting from your article was there isn't so much on, on the canoe slalom side of things. And rather than letting that hold you back, you kind of went down a different avenue and, and, and spoke to the coach. I was just wondering if you could expand a little bit on those kind of technical conversations that you have with the coaches. Yeah, it can uh, it can be a challenging one to start off in a sport where um, there's not really a lot of useful literature out there because you're pretty much starting uh, with a blank canvas and in a way that's you know uh, actually can be quite a good thing because it allows you to really th think out of the box um, and uh, certainly the the coach is someone who can. Um, you know, provide you a lot, lot of insight in terms of sport, but I've certainly found you can actually then, particularly by using the multidisciplinary team and using your understanding of functional anatomy uh, in particular, as well as physiology and biomechanics, began to begin to establish other avenues that can actually support performance within that sport. So in canoe slalom, for example, uh, when we started off, it was pretty much an upper body based program because that's what the sport wanted but through collaboration 
with the multidisciplinary team and then ultimately with the coaching staff we established there is certainly benefit of actually training the low, lower extremity so as we all know the uh, local and global tissue uh, around the, the pelvis plays um, a key part in terms of stabilizing that joint then that impacts um, stability of the, the spine which is uh, plays a role in terms of reducing the risk of lumbar spine injuries so uh, going through that route and having some of those conversations allowed us to then establish well there's actually a need to have components of lower extremity training within the program uh, and then that allowed us to actually then take uh, the program to another level to support the athletes in the sport nice it's re really um, useful to to get that kind of conversation going and get that insight in the sport um obviously you were mentioning there a sport that you are not so familiar with and you're having to kind of get what information you can um how would you do that a little differently say if you were in steve's position where you know steve's worked in hockey his whole life played hockey um how often do you feel like you need to revise your needs analysis or review what you're doing to prevent yourself falling into a kind of position of being complacent and doing what you've always done because you uh, feel like that's that's always worked in the past and that's what you're going to keep doing? Yeah, that's a great question, Simon. Um, I mean, personally, I tend to question uh, question my processes on a regular basis. I think it just keeps one uh, on one's feet uh, because I think just having that sort of growth mindset and trying to always think about what you can do better um, I think is I think is really important um, and I do find um, I have certain approaches um, in terms of uh, training and then down the line just just going through that process where you're reviewing and questioning what you do you quite often realize well that there may be actually better things to do and uh and i think personally that's absolutely fine because like i said it keeps you on your toes and it makes your practice ever evolving yeah it, it's so interesting you know um like like kind of so i said about hockey um for me the season is so um so busy so chock-a-block everything comes at you so quickly I tend to try and spend a lot of the time in the off season um, reviewing a what I've done. So I tend to carry a notebook around with me um, during the season. And as things are cropping up, I'm just kind of making notes and thinking, God, I need to remember to look at that. And then during the off season, I'll spend a lot of time, um, you know, listening to podcasts and, and reviewing articles and stuff like that to see where I can uh, build my kind of you know the evolution of that needs analysis because i was just thinking back to like being with the figure skating team in china and actually the last probably month of the season when the athletes are actually at their uh, sort of peak in terms of the competition season i was actually our program was pretty set and i my mind had already sort of switched to reviewing what we'd been doing and kind of thinking about things that we could implement, you know, after the after the athletes have had a break, what we're we going to do in the off season? How are we going to adapt what we've done this season? So um, I like the fact that you always have a notebook with you to to keep a track of that. 
Yeah, those they, those are all fantastic po uh, points. Um, I think something else to consider is the feedback from the coaching staff and even the athletes. Because I've certainly found if you implement um, a certain type of training, for example, um, you know, you do that for a period of time. I've quite often got the question, okay, that's fantastic. Now what do we do next? Where does that go? So I think just the nature uh, of the beast is such that you have to stay on your toes because even if you aren't challenging yourself, hopefully one's in an environment where you are receiving that critical feedback from people around you. Um, and that doesn't just apply to strength and conditioning. I think it works both ways uh, across different disciplines. Uh, I think if one's got an effective team, the people around you will keep you on your toes and you'll keep each other on your toes. So uh, I think that's, that's something to maybe consider as well. Yeah, most definitely. It's funny you say that actually our physiotherapist from the team contacted me recently. Uh, we use catapult for, for GPS tracking and he said, Hey, can you just send me everything you've got about catapult? Cause I really want to learn more about how you're doing the, the GPS tracking and in the same way, I really want to know more about how he plans his return to performance. So, um, you know, you, you kind of it's really good, like you say, to kind of cross pollinate almost uh, in all of that. So. All right, let's uh, let's move on. So you have worked um, in a range of individual sports and in team sports. We know you've done some work in football and obviously you've had the, the water sports stuff as well. It's interested um, just to kind of get your take anecdotally a little bit about the differences and the similarities you've found um, when you've been working with individual athletes and then team sport athletes. Um, sure, Steve. Uh, I guess the first one is just more around logistics and planning. So there's some obviously big differences there in terms of you know competition structure, etc. Um, from my experience, I've, I've typically found even when working with team sport athletes, uh, training and groups to be quite effective because uh, not only does that promote competitiveness, but also gives you the right motivational climate uh, within sessions. Um, and that is uh, impacted by culture of sport to a certain degree. So in canoeing, uh, even in rowing, most of the athletes uh, tend to follow a similar pattern of competitions uh, and, and that creates more of a group environment. Whereas uh, with uh, triathlon, for example, uh, there was more diversity in terms of athletes having uh, different competition schedules uh, and then just the, the culture of the sport was training was also done more individually, even though there were group sessions. So uh, I think it's 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 uh, culture is something that certainly does play a part in that. Um, and then, you know, sports like football, rugby, which are your sort of typical uh, field-based team sports, uh, have much shorter preparation periods or pre-season. So that also impacts how we approach things unlike Olympic sports where we've got a lot much longer periods of time to prepare the athletes and fewer competitions. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Like every, every group or team has its own, um, like own kind of culture and um, differences. Um, I've worked a lot with both individual sports and team sports and even teams that aren't necessarily teams. So like the take the Chinese figure skating team, for example, they're a, they're a team, but they're actually 
some of their biggest competition as well. Um, always very interesting to try and get that di that dynamic right and get that balance of giving athletes individualized programs, but also having something that kind of suits the, the group. Um, going back to you know some of the work that I've done uh, with some of those teams where they're individual athletes, but actually they're competing against each other. It's quite nice in the off season, um, like in the summer, you can have some fairly consistent training blocks where you can explain to the athletes that the programming is effective for the sport and not necessarily for them individually. And as you work through that seat, as you work through that off season and you get closer towards the competition, that's when you start tweaking things and making them a little more individual and trying to uh, change the programming according to the style of play for one athlete or the specifics of what one coach wants versus another coach wants. Yeah, um, that's a very interesting point. The idea about um, individualizing the the workouts, and I'd be interested to hear from from kind of both of you about this. Firstly, on you know how do you drive competition? Whether it's um, you know a, a collective of individuals. You know, I've worked in in speed skating and, and similar side to your figure skating and, and, and to the rowing team, Ishan, like those those groups of individuals. And then I've worked in teams. I'm, I'm just wondering how you guys would drive that competition in the training. Some, some teams, and I use that term, you know, in inverted commas, are gonna be different from some groups of individuals. Um, just following on from your point, Sai, um... The way I tend to approach things is look at the athlete in front of you um, and then in a team sports setting particularly uh, maximize the potential of the individual within the team and then through that you're actually going to potentially impact the performance of the overall team. Um, and then in terms of uh, actually uh, making uh, training more competitive, I think just the nature of athletes is such that if you put a bunch of them together with I think without really doing very much, particularly with higher level athletes, you're just going to get competition. Um, so I think that that's one way to maybe look at it um, from a more technical SNC point of view. Um, typically in programs I worked in, we, we've had markers just through collecting normative data longitudinally. We've had markers in terms of where where we need them to get to. Um, so again, that's that's another way of making things competitive. Yeah, I agree with that in terms of the, the competition element. I think there's a couple of different uh, different mentalities that athletes have, right? Like you've got that group of, a, they're a collective, but they're somewhat in it for themselves. And so they're then competitive against each other. And whether that's in a team and the fact that they might be uh, competing with someone else to get selected for the team, um, or it could be, a, you know, a different sport like table tennis, um, another sport that I work with in China where they're, um, they're all in a team, they're all training together, but actually they are their biggest rivals and they really need to beat each other. So in that instance, it's pretty easy to get that competitive element. Um, I'm also a huge fan of, this is particularly um, relevant because this is how I was as, a, as an athlete when I was younger is that 
I'm not a particularly competitive person, but I don't want to let people down. So when others are working really hard, that makes me work harder because I don't want to let the team down. And I think that's also a really valuable tool as well is to make sure that the, you know, the overall intensity is exactly what you want and that you, you help to, to drive that and create that environment. And then the, you know, even those individuals that perhaps aren't so competitive, but don't want to let everyone down, they're going to raise their game as well. Yeah, really interesting that you say that, actually. I was just having a conversation with somebody else in a similar vein. Um, and, and I use our captain team quite similarly with the hockey team. So, um, you know, we've talked in the past about building trust and building relationships with athletes. And the quickest way to ruin that is by doing something that they see betrays that trust and oftentimes that's running to a coach and saying somebody's not doing what they should be doing right so to try and avoid that as much as possible if i find that you know i want to up the tempo up the intensity in the weight room or maybe if there are some guys not doing everything that they should be doing i tend to put that back onto our captain's team and let them deal with it now you know that works great in a team environment probably not so much in a in a group of individuals but just something for for people to consider if they are having difficulties in that team environment make use of the peers in that group and i think that's uh that's one way the other thing i was just going to say about is using technology and i won't harp on too much cuz you know everybody has different things and 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 ways they're able to use it um, very fortunate that we have a catapult system and we have a gym aware system in the club. So one of the um, things I did this year was use gym awares to kind of drive that performance because athletes love that immediate feedback and they love seeing a number up on the screen. And we were doing some jump testing. And as soon as the guys figured out that they could see each other's scores, the you know the competitive drive went through the roof. And it's something I'm going to do next season with the catapult data is in terms of putting up, you know, the yesterday's practice data in terms of some very simple metrics. And probably I'm going to use something like um, the number of minutes at high intensity, some, somewhere along those lines, just to, again, drive that uh, internal uh, competition a little bit. I don't know if either of you guys have had any luck using, comp- uh, using technology in training. Yeah, I think those are all uh, great ways to sort of promote intent within sessions. So um, across uh, different sports I worked with, whenever we've done any form of um, rate of force development work, so something along the lines of jump squats, I think it's absolutely critical to have um, a gym aware or a tendo unit or um, some some form of um, technology that provides live feedback because I found without that, uh, the intent of the athlete certainly isn't as high. Uh, and as we all know, that's critical for um, developing a physical quality such as rate of force development. Uh, when I was working in football, uh, again, did a similar sort of thing in terms of GPS, providing uh, daily reports for the athletes in terms of uh, different markers. I think something to just think about there is that it needs to fit in with what the coaches are trying to achieve. 
because you can get particularly athletes if they aren't particularly educated about about what those numbers mean just trying to actually uh, get higher higher distances or higher speeds um, so I think that needs to really fit into the objectives of the training session and it needs to be discussed with the coach and then um, based on that give athletes um, the required information yeah, it's funny you said that at the end. I was just about to jump in and ask uh, both of you. Uh, obviously, Steve, you were mentioning about using the data to drive competition. Um, are there any times either of you have uh, used data and it's backfired, as in it's you were hoping to motivate someone, but actually it's demotivated them? Um I'm, yeah, not not so much sure if it's it's demotivated or motivated but definitely <clears throat> I've had people get the wrong end of the stick when I've been presenting them data um, one of the things the catapult does is look at left to right balance and guys you know have got a little bit caught up on that sometimes um, and you know I have to explain well listen you're a left winger you're always going to be moving to one side more than the other um, did have uh, a bit of a a bit of a backfire this season um, caused a bit of a, a fuss with the coaching staff because I'm I try and be very transparent and I give the the players you know I always say to them any of this data is available for you to to look at and if you want to talk about anything we can talk about it and we had some particularly hard sessions and. Uh, unbeknownst to me a player had come to me and kind of asked me a little bit about their load and and I told them they then went to the coach and said oh my load's through the roof I really need a day off practice the coach comes back to me and is like well hang on a second you know why are these guys now using this data kind of against me so yeah it, it can be very very tricky to manage if you're if you're not doing it in the right way and just a point that Ishan said about, you know, the context of the data, I think, is very important. So this idea I'd said about high intensity minutes in a practice, well, that's all well and good. But if you're a bit part player on that team, your minutes are never going to be up at the very top because that's just not the role that you get to perform. It's out of your hands. If, um, if there's a practice that's a particularly high skill practice, well, nobody's minutes are going to be high. So it is also a little bit about the context um, and explaining those situations. Um, Ishan, I don't know if you've got anything to add on that. Um, yeah, I guess uh, more, uh, my, my sort of thoughts are that the, the three things I would really think about when it comes to data is... Um, does it align to the coaching process? So whether that's the overall sport uh, training or the S&C, um, does everyone understand what the numbers mean? Um, and then can people see that the numbers collected are being used to inform the coaching process? So I think those are sort of three areas I'd kind of look at uh, when I'm when I'm using and collecting data. 
Yeah, definitely. It's it's so important to have that kind of uh, the, those three areas. Um, guys, I'm going to move us on. We completely segued uh, away from the topic I thought we were going to be talking about, which was training individual and team sports athletes. But that's why I kind of like these organic conversations, because you're never really sure what you're going to end up talking about. Um, we have picked apart some pretty technical aspects and one of the things that I definitely like to do is just to get uh, to know our guest a little bit more. Now, obviously, Ishan, Simon and I have worked with you for a while, so we know you pretty well. Um, but I'd love to hear, you know, away from the technical elements of coaching, I'd just love to hear a little bit more from you about, you know, your job and the things it's allowed you to do. And to that end, I know that you have lived all over the world and you've worked all over the world um, and I'd love to hear from you a little bit about what that experience has been a, like kind of living and coaching around the world some of the good bits some of the bad bits that you've seen um, yeah it's it's certainly been really interesting for me personally um, particularly over the last year and a half um, uh, working uh, working in China uh, we've, uh, from a technical point of view, it's not it's not been too dissimilar to what I was doing in the UK. Uh, my day to day job's fairly similar um, in terms of how I operate, which is great. Um, I think the the novel experience has been more around the sort of interpersonal side of things, uh, working working with uh, people from different cultures. So I've been uh, quite fortunate to work with uh, not only um, people from China but people from uh, multiple different countries um, both in Europe and elsewhere North America um, and every, everyone's got different backgrounds so uh, I think it's it's been interesting to actually get an understanding of where people come from and then finding finding sort of common ground and building good working relationships um, and then ultimately work, working towards uh, common goals um, so that that's been a really really interesting uh, learning for me uh, in the role I'm, I'm, I'm in now uh, and then it's uh, you know outside of that we've we've had a lot of travel which you know may not be for everyone but for me I, I personally love travel so and it's one of the ro- reasons I took up took up the role is to live in different places so we've been to a whole host of different countries um, so uh, that that's that's been great as well. Yeah, nice. You've definitely travelled a lot. Obviously, um, your first uh, few months with the the team in China you actually ended up spending the whole time in North America um, and then obviously with the the team you're with now you spend half your time in Europe and and that um, I want to take that back a little bit to what we were discussing earlier about your your journey through your career and how valuable you think it is to for coaches to look for these opportunities of broad and how much you think you've actually learned from working internationally and how different that might be say if you'd have stayed I mean, you you were with um, Blackburn Rovers for a while like how different do you think that would have been if you'd have just stayed there working for that one team versus what you've done instead um I would say that's yeah that's that's a great question um and to be honest, it's it's hard to say because you know I've I've met fantastic practitioners who've 
worked in the same organization 15 years and I've met fantastic practitioners who've um, worked in a multi uh, and you know moved between roles um the, the things I've uh for me I've actually quite enjoyed moving uh, across different roles because I think each role is given me or taught me something different uh the, the things I try and focus on are not moving around too much so spending uh, so I spent three years at Blackburn and three years in Sc- at the Scottish Institute of Sport and I did thinking back think had I left after a year or so um, a lot of the things that I was able to implement uh, by the end of the period wouldn't have happened and then that would have reduced potentially reduced the learnings I had within that time so um, I, I kind of see for myself you know you want to spend enough time in a place to actually uh, make the most of that role to make as much impact you can within that role um, so all the stuff um, you know in the in the paper I, I don't that may not have happened had I not been in the Scottish Institute for three years and you know, saying that I'm, I may have been able to build on that further had I stayed longer. So it's it's a tricky one. Uh, and a lot of it dep- depends on the opportunities that come your way. And based on those, you've got to make decisions. Um, but I guess in my case, I, I certainly have, I, I feel benefited from um, the breadth of experience because each, each place has allowed me to uh, meet different people. Um, and I've learned a lot from the, the people I've worked with. Um, so so, uh, so things you know have seemed to have worked to my advantage in, in in that manner and then again my current role um working with people from different countries has been interesting because like i said everyone has different backgrounds different educational backgrounds different experiences um and you know there, there's no one road to rome so uh when when you work um working in the uk we we all come from a similar background to a certain extent um so this really gets you to, to empathize um, and understand, you know, different people's points of view um, and ultimately find common ground and find, you know, ways of working together, which I think for me has been a really good learning over the last year and a half. Yeah, I totally agree. I think there's a, there's a sweet spot in any any job. Um, I think if you move around too much, you constantly spend your time uh, learning a new environment, just getting to know people before you get to that um, that point where you're actually in tune with everyone and you're up and running. So I think it's interesting what you're saying about having been at the Scottish Institute for long enough, that then led to other opportunities and gave you the opportunity to do this, um, to write the paper, I mean. Um, I, think it's, I think it's really valuable that people as long as you're in an environment where you're challenged and there's some kind of growth or change, and by that I mean like if you get promoted or you take on extra responsibilities, as long as those things are happening on a regular basis, um, you don't necessarily need to be leaving, you know, leaving every job every few years, but I definitely think you need some sort of change every few years. And I think um, in terms of our industry, I, it's really hard to, you know, find a job at the end of the street. You know, I know that's obviously an extreme example, but you know, we're always going to have to be looking around to find that next challenge or that next opportunity. Yeah, it's some great points. Um, and and Simon, you know, we've had some interesting discussions about you know the life of of high performance and contracting and 
what do you do when your contract's coming up? Um, that kind of time frame that you were both talking about, I totally agree with that. Um, I forget who, but somebody once said to me, you want to spend three to four years in a in a position. And I think that's perfect because, like you say, the first year you're still learning, not necessarily learning the ropes, but you're learning how that organization works. And then you need time to apply uh, the learning that you're getting from that experience in conjunction with your previous experiences to apply it and develop yourself before you before you move on. And yeah, totally agree in terms of <clears throat> some people have to just look uh, look around and, and unfortunately some people aren't in that position to do so. I was talking to a coach the other day who's a fantastic, fantastic coach. And I said, oh, you know, what have you been up to? He's like, yeah, you know, I'm still working in a gym. I'm still... PTing because he's just not in the position to up sticks and move. You know, we've all kind of been lucky to be able to to do that. So yeah, I think it's dependent on the situation in a lot of times. But I'm just going to move on to a, a complete kind of random question. So Ishan mentioned it there, traveled around the world, especially I know with rowing, they go to a bunch of different cities. Um, I'm incredibly lucky to travel to a whole bunch of different cities with my job. Question for both of you. Let's go Ishan first and then Simon. Where is the most interesting or enjoyable city that you've had to visit whilst you're uh, during, you know, on a work trip? Um, yeah, that's that's certainly been a big perk of the job. Um, all the travel, um, you know, the rowing season happens or has happened in Europe primarily the time I've been in the sport. So we we spent the whole summer in Europe. Um, Europe was fantastic during the summer. Um, so even though we work long hours, um, we we've certainly managed to get some uh, good times in alongside that. Um, I'd probably say Spain and Portugal have my been my two favorite uh, uh, training destinations so far. Um, we've had some fantastic. Uh, natural lakes, um, um, you know, beautiful cities um, to visit on the occasional day off. And then, you know, the food's fantastic. Uh, and, you know, we spent uh, all winter in Portugal, which given it was winter, uh, you know, I couldn't complain about the weather at all, uh, particularly coming from the UK. Uh, it's it, and uh, we like uh, like you mentioned we're we're on the go quite a lot so I've been living out of a suitcase pretty much for the past year and a half and you know that certainly may not be for everyone but it's it's what I signed up for and I do like travel so it's uh, I am I am enjoying the adventure at the minute. Yeah, I think um, I I was pleased that uh, during my time in China I actually wasn't traveling quite as much as you Ishan I know the uh, living out of a suitcase like that can actually be really tough and I, that certainly adds to um, let's say that the, perhaps the need to uh, move on sooner rather than later is that's definitely something that you can't do for you know five plus years um, I'd say for myself Steve uh, the best work trips I've had have um, been to Japan. I've had a couple of work trips out there. Um, one was a teaching um, contract and I was out there for a few days teaching uh, some other coaches. 
and that was phenomenal. The hospitality and everything that, that you know you get treated to in Japan is just phenomenal. And I was lucky enough to be able to tag on a couple of extra days to travel around a little bit by myself. Um, that's definitely been you know my kind of highlight on the travel front. Yeah, it's funny to hear Ishan talk about being in Portugal in the winter, whereas I've obviously had the exact opposite experience, and my winters have been spent in Siberia and northeast Russia, where it's you know minus thirty degrees. But I certainly try and make the most of these travel experiences. Um, getting out, even if it's just for thirty minutes, have a walk around the city, so you kind of can see and you know take in the culture and the architecture and stuff like that stuff like that i find it really um gives you a different appreciation for the work and and the job you're doing i guess i'm kind of somewhere in the middle between you guys where we do a lot of travel in season and then i have a long off season and we have um kind of two to three weeks at a time when we're at home and I have an apartment in Beijing so I get the best of both worlds really and and you know I definitely can't complain with that um right just gonna wrap up because we're kind of approaching the hour mark now um it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation every time we the sort of three of us chat I learn so much from Ishan which is I super you know appreciate it um Ishan, just in case anybody wants to get hold of you, ask you any questions, um, follow your travels around Portugal, uh, where can guys reach you? Um, I'm on Twitter and happy to connect with anyone who's uh, wanting to chat. Uh, my Twitter handle is at iRawlySing. Okay, and Simon, just remind everybody what's, uh, what's your best contacts? Um, Instagram's probably the best one for me. Um, I'm Simon underscore J underscore Taylor. Um, I said I don't always post that much in terms of content, um, but if anyone does send me a direct message, I will get back to them. Nice. And you can reach me um, Instagram and Twitter at SNNE83. Okay, just leaves uh, me to say, Ishan, thanks very much for your time. I know we've had a few technical issues trying to get this up and running, so really appreciate you coming on today. Uh, no, thanks, guys. It's been an absolute ple pleasure to talk. Really enjoyed that and uh, speak to you guys soon.